Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Guys, how's it going? It's good to see your faces. It's been a while. The magic of the podcast world. We did a whole bunch of them in July, and it's been a bit of a spell. We've all been busy doing different things, so it's this is a big catch-up episode that I'm looking forward to doing. And what's new? I know Michael's and just update our listeners. Michael's in Anchorage. Ron is in Wyoming. Missy, our producers in Denver, recording this and working on it as we record it perfectly, right, Missy? And I'm in Ontario, Canada. How's it going? Good. It's it has been a long time. September. Way too it's, long. It's one of the best months for wildlife photography. Colors are changing, animals are doing all kinds of stuff. And we're all in different places for a variety of variables for different reasons. But that way we're gonna divide and conquer and have all kinds of stuff that we can share with our listeners, different subjects. And people. Don't, we've We've run into friends of the podcast all over the place during during this fall and um, had the opportunity to do some interviews with some folks that a lot of listeners have asked us to talk to. And those are forthcoming. But this is like you said, this is a good opportunity to catch up. And I don't Michael keeps teasing with these images from Alaska. And I've thrown some teasers out with uh, with some wildlife down in the, the lower Rockies. And I have not seen anything from you yet. <laughs> <laughs> I did put something out there, but my story is a little yeah, my story is a little different. My story begins in 24 hours, truly. I mean, I don't want to get I was going to talk about this and get into it, but I mean this is the first time in many years that I've been in Ontario for early September. I'm usually in the far north. Honestly, that's where I love to be for early September, but because of a variety of reasons, I, I had to stay home for a few extra weeks, but that allowed me to do whitetails or try to do whitetails shedding velvet, something I haven't been able to capture for years. But I would love to be where you guys have been. But that, my bag, my the bedroom right now is a disaster. I'm about to pack the hockey bag and get ready and fly out this weekend and I have uh, an eight-day eight trip. There's a back-to-back-to-back trips coming up, but the one to the Rockies where I have a whole list of, of species that I'm hoping to be able to photograph. But, yeah, so far you guys have been the ones producing most of the content that I've seen lately on your Instagram feeds and on our, our Instagram feed as well. And I have to say, Ron, I am – I am the elk, I'm loving it. Man, the light that you've been capturing, that bull is off the charts. And But the way you've been filming him – uh, check it out, people. I'm, I mean, you've, you had to have already seen it, but if you haven't, you've got to go to both the Wild and Exposed Instagram feed and Ron's as, as well and check those out because they're magical shots. And Michael's been killing it in Alaska and having lots of fun, and I, I'm I'm just looking forward to hugging it out with you guys and hearing what's going <laughs> on. I mean, we communicate on the phone and text, but it's not quite the same as sitting down. And I know we're not in person. Some magic of the internet, but just we can see one another and and catch up and and hear what's going on. And there's a lot of other things to talk about on today's podcast as well, as far as some gear stuff that's coming down the pipeline. When does it ever stop, people? I mean, it's like you get a new piece of gear and it's like, I'm so happy I have this. I'm trying to learn. Oh, wait, there's something better. It's been weeks or months. It's just bang, bang. How do you keep up? We'll get into that after we get through the intro. 
But uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> lots, lots to go on here today. So uh, I haven't given a report from up here, but fall is definitely, it's almost over up here, actually. I mean, everything in town is yellow and pretty, but you get up high in the mountains and it's, it's turning brown pretty quick. There's still some good pockets of good color, but, and the, the trick is capturing moose in the color. Or Unless you shoot in black and white with, and kill it with that shot. <laughs> Michael sent a teaser out this afternoon. I'm like, holy smokes, here he goes again. It was an amazing shot. Just trying a few different things, you know, just trying something a little bit different. I've learned so much on this trip. I mean, when you photograph day after day after day after day, which has been really cool to do, you're constantly refining that kit. And when I'm trying to capture video and video is always first priority. So if I can do that, that's what I do. But if it's raining or if it's windy or, you know, depending on what the situation is, I'll just shoot stills and I'm constantly changing this kit around. Some days I'll just take a short lens and I'll just make myself shoot with just nothing but like a 24 to 70. Some days I'll, <clears throat> I didn't tell you guys, but I sent you a little teaser picture. Yeah, you did. I got a new lens for the Sony, so I've been trying that out. Toy. And that was all because this damn backpack weighs so much with my Canon and the 200 to 400. I was, I was dying. So I, I decided to make for a less, uh, make for a pack that was less weight by spending a little money. What's the lens? I bought I saw, I saw that picture, but 100 yeah. to 400 Sony. And have you used it yet? Yeah, just a little and bit. I haven't had really a really good everything that I've shot for the last three or four days since I got it. It's always been video, right? But it's super sharp, right on. Super sharp. It's supposed to be and a G Master, which is <coughs> excuse me, what they call the that lens is a G Master. The new two to six is not a G Master. And oh, it isn't. No. Hmm. So I don't know what the difference is, but I've heard people, I talk to people, there's a lot of people up there that have that lens and they say that it's sharper than the 100 to 400. That's the reports that I've seen a couple of people in uh, some different in Western Wyoming, as well as central Colorado that have been using that two to six. And I've, I've asked them all about it and everybody says it is just tack sharp. I got a chance to use one you know, look through it with the Sony a nine body mm -hmm. and the speed is unbelievable. As far as focus, I mean, it oh, is just like it, it's like nothing I've ever used. It is so mm -hmm. fast. Here's the gear stuff, right? Okay. I know. What's and I don't really want to get into it, but <laughs> it is amazing. I was, I, but I have not, I've yet to see a picture taken with that lens, you know, I've seen pictures where people show me something on their phone and it looks spectacular, but everything looks spectacular on a phone. Right. So right. I don't know. I would like to be able to take a couple of raw images and compare them back to back or side to side. Everything you've done so far is video. That's why you haven't had that chance yet. So, okay. Well, and I don't have anybody up here now that's shooting a two to six that I know. I just ran across people on the trail. So I did a podcast with KAR photography, which is Kate and Adam Rice. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had that two to six and that's the one I actually used. 
And I used it with the A9 body, which is their more, it's more predominantly for stills. Apparently, I don't know enough about it, but that was mm -hmm. a super fast combination. Kind of a the only thing I'm not sold on is that 6.3. Yeah. Except that the Tony, the Tony, the Sony sensor does a very good job with higher ISO. So the 6.3 is kind of negated, but then, you know, where it does make a difference, no matter what kind of sensor you have is by being able to get some separation from your background because you're, you know, your depth of field is too deep almost. That's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about yeah. the low light at all. I think it's fine. In fact, we shot a moose the other night at right at golden hour and they were, they didn't have any problems at all capture, you know, with light quality or the amount mm -hmm. of light. And I was running mine up to 2000 ISO and it was fine. But so I just don't know about separation. You know, a yeah. lot of times if you're shooting these moose and they're in an alder patch or something, you want that to fall off as much as you can. And if at 6.3, I'm just not sure that it will do that. Yeah. Unless you're closer than you should be probably. Or there's a yeah. big space around a ridge and the background's way right. out. Background's distant. That's yeah. Easy. But can you do it if it's, if it's 20 yards away, can you make it fall off? I don't know. You know, there's a shop here in town that has one that you can rent. So I might go rent it for a couple of days and try it out. Just you know, test it out. That'd be good. I, if you're doing a really tight shot, I could see the importance of having it fall off. But the other thing to keep in mind, too, um, with moose stuff, every time I get an email, if you can hear that, it's just an idea going off in my head. It's not an email. Um, <laughs> is that 6.3 is kind of the minimum I shoot at for moose for depth of field to get the entire rack in, in focus when you're close enough to fill the frame, too. So, you know, something to think about. There's some handicap to it because it's a little more depth of field than you might want for some scenarios. And video would be one of those applications, I would assume. But for stills, I mean, I'm always shooting at 6.3, or F8 to try and get enough of that moose in detail myself. But again, it depends on the style of image that you're, you're going for. But what's the 1 to 400? What's the aperture on that? It's a 4.556. A sliding. So okay. it's pretty nice. Yeah, sliding. And it, it telescopes out. Okay. So... So the two to six is all internal. So that's kind of cool. What's the price point difference between those two? Do you know off the top of your head? <laughs> the two to six is cheaper. I'm yeah. confused. I'm <laughs> confused. Two to six is cheaper. The one to four is a G Master, which would think of that kind of fancy language. It's sharper, but it's actually not. The well, two that's to six what people are saying. I don't know. We'll have to. We have done the we test. Need to, I need to compare it just to see. I can't imagine you can get sharper than what I've been shooting. You know, how sharp is sharp? It's just like, what do you, you know, and everybody's technique's different. And, you know, I don't know. We'll just, I just have to play with it more. I need a situation where I can shoot. Well, what I need to do is leave the video camera at home and then it'll force me to shoot stills. But mm -hmm. I haven't been doing down that. A little quick rabbit hole here about the sharpness of images. Like you said, it depends on the application. For social media, you can get away with a lot. But honestly, I think it's more nowadays, a lot of the equipment's capable of sharp images. It's more the photographer and their skill set and making sure that the scenario that they're shooting and will create a sharp image. And I, I'm, anyway, I won't get into the mm -hmm. background story on that, but I've, I've been seeing that lately with some of the projects I've been working on. So it's a matter of making that a priority quality of, of work and I, all this new gear should be sharp. And yeah, arguably there'll be some, cameras that are sharper than others but you know i'm sure the vast majority will pull off 
most applications or most desires as far as big prints and stuff like that. Well, I'm talking with Kate and Adam who are using this. It's got in the body stabilization, but it also has in the lens stabilization and they work together. And if that is the case, they, you know, if it works together, they were telling me they could get shots at 160th handheld two to six at six. And it was sharp as a tack. I got a, I got a 30th and a 50th this week sharp, but I'd shoot 15 and I'd get two or three in super low light. Right. Uh, you know, I was trying to keep it at a thousand ISO. I'd bump it to 16 or two, but I prefer to keep it at a thousand. So my strategy is I'll shoot it at 16 or two to get that 125th in that low light, do a couple of bursts. And if the situation, if the time extends long enough for me to adjust, then I'll drop down to a thousand to improve the image quality and pray, hold everything steady. And even a 30th or 60th, if I take 10, there are two or three that are sharp. Yep. So. It's, yeah, I think it all comes back to the photographer for sure. Cause <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the equipment helps a ton that uh, the other thing about the a nine is I would shoot next to them and you could hear the frames per second. I mean, that thing is 20 frames a second. So, I mean, you could be, <laughs> I, I it's don't almost know. video if you, yeah, keep it, it really is. So if you're, you're talking about shooting multiple shots or multiples, I think that's right. what you want to do. But that camera does it very well. Right. Well, that's it. If you do a burst like that, then you're going to get some that are sharp. Mind you, who loves editing? I do. I do. You know, that's <laughs> right. Then you start editing right. tons. Is that compromise? Yeah. You're, you know, a few hours out in the field and then you're looking at 20 hours at the computer editing all that stuff to, before it's all done. It's like anyway, but you want the shots. Depends on so yeah. it's always a compromise. It's, it's the world we live in, the game we play. But that's cool to hear about that. And I, you know, as the more I hear, the more I think about it. I was speaking to a friend who shoots mirrorless. He switched Nikon to the okay. How I was thinking about this the other day to the Z6 or Z7, or in Canada, the Z6 or the Z7, and he prefers the six. Because uh, it's better, I think that's what he said, it's better for stills, whereas the 7 was better for video. And he does more stills. But he tried both and then switched. Now he's shooting two 6s, not the 7. But for his application, silent is very important. So the mirrorless, that's a big deal. There's no noise. No clickety-clickety-click. And, you know, shooting video, I mean... Mr. Michael Morrow, I'm sure you will just celebrate the day when you have your still photographer buddies here with you standing shoulder to shoulder on an animal and you don't hear anymore while you're filming your video. Oh, nice yeah, everybody always, everybody that I'm shooting with, you know, when, when someone comes up, a guy asked me yesterday, he's like, Hey, how far do I need to be away? So you don't hear my, and I'm like, dude, I don't even try to record audio with you guys around just because you can't do it but yeah these i put mine on silent it's kind of weird to get used to it too you know when you're shooting that picture it's just totally don't realize how many images you have when you get home well no because i've been taking careful it's just the fact that you don't hear a click you know you just mm -hmm. see that you just push the button and you see the it's writing to the card but you mm -hmm. don't really it is kind of cool it's gonna take some getting used to though because after all these years of hearing it that confirmation well, and there's, yeah. there, 
It's just like getting likes on social media. Whether we like it or not, there's a psychological rush to the experience. And when you get <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm getting it. When that's gone, it's like that part of the, you know, there's something going on there well, in our head. There's I, an adjustment. With that whole thing, too, is if you're shooting with two or three other photographers and you hear someone firing away, you're like, what am I missing? What am I missing? Yeah, and then, all you, know, you know, now and if everybody's it. shooting silent, you're not going to have that cue on, oh, I'm missing something over here. You know, so mm -hmm. it could actually be better for individual photographers that are on top of it. But I use that a lot where, you you know, if you're sitting around watching something. So I don't know. It's it's uh it's going to be a change, but I see everybody doing it. Moose Man is up here, um, Rick and Libby, and they shoot with the D850. Is that right? D850? Yep. yep. That's what they use until this year. They didn't even show up with D850s. They brought the Z7. Z7. That's all they're using. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for doing both. Yeah. Fahrenheit and Celsius. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so they're only careless this year. They, yeah. Okay. So they've the 850, something that, you know, everybody I know who shoots 850, the 850 loves it, but they shelved it for the seven. They're like, okay. we don't need it. What this camera does, it does everything. And I, and then the guy that sells all my stock footage, the, the red stuff, mm -hmm. I saw him this summer and he's, that's all he's using now too. For stills is that Z7. Cool. So I don't know. I think you guys are time to put your cameras on Craigslist and switch on over. It's it's so tempting. okay. So we did we did talk about some of the new upcoming technology, and that's where this is kind of. I'm still kind of waiting because I I think that the one that you're looking for I think it's coming, but I'm not sure it's quite here yet. It'll be here next week. It'll be here tomorrow morning when you wake Actually, up. Actually, no, you're you're right. Tonight, next week, tonight before you go that, to bed. Uh, what is it? The photo kina or the big photography conference uh, is coming up. So everybody now, right now. So all of a sudden, last week, you started seeing these Canon rumors, Nikon rumors, Sony rumors, and now this week they're starting to leak a little bit more. Starting to leak some specs. And so as I started to look at some of this stuff, I, I think we're right on the verge of having the camera that everybody wants and you're never going to need anything more. That being said, they're always going to try to throw one more thing in there where, you, you know, you think you need something. Nikon's talking about their <laughs> – yeah, exactly. That's the one – that was my, my first camera right there. You better tell people what you're showing because – Oh, we had a couple of kids over this week for a birthday party and uh, friends of the family. So Pilly got our kids' toy trunk out and there's this Fisher-Price little camera. You put the disc in and you hit the little button. Yeah, some people are happy with that. I know that's a bit of an exaggeration or regression here, but... Yeah, but Ron, but, if, if that camera's coming out, what... I mean, there's... I I just still don't think that there could be that that one camera that does it all, video and stills. Okay, so someday, let someday. me let me just throw this out to you. So Canon's talking about the EOS. They've got that EOS R, right? And that's their mirrorless camera. So it's, it looks like they're gonna. And and the way that these rumor sites get started in digging for information is they look for the the patents that the camera companies file. 
So Canon has filed a patent on an 80 megapixel sensor, a 6K sensor. They think that's what's going to be in this EOS R. Um, looking at 60 frames a second raw in in four or six k and then um it also, also raw video raw video yeah oh very nice yep Games. and then you know as well as having the 80 megapixel sensor for stills um to me that's it's huge plus in body stabilization you know uh, Sony was the first one to kind of master the in-body stabilization. Canon now, it looks like it's going to have in-body stabilization. And what that basically means is the way they stabilize it in-body is the sensor isn't fixed. The sensor actually moves to adjust and compensate for the movement of the, the photographer or the videographer. Nikon has announced or leaked uh, their D6 which, you know, a lot of people are wondering why is anybody, why is anybody still producing DSLRs or putting money into the DSLR? This thing looks like it's going to be, you know, a 24 megapixel uh, full frame sensor, but it also is going to record 60 frames a second 4K. And they've done a lot with uh, the auto focusing system, according to the rumor site, they're going to have the 3D and the, the eye focus, like, Sony has, which makes sense because they are using Sony sensor. It's also going to have in-body stabilization. So everybody's kind of moving that direction, which I think is going to be a necessity because Sony's killing them as far as, uh, you know, as far as stabilization, like Michael was talking about with the, um, with that two to 600, having that combination of the A9 body with the in-body stabilization and the stabilization in the lens you're getting images at, you know, 30th, 15th of a second that you could never do handheld before. And that's why, you know, for stills anyway, that's why most of us aren't, aren't packing tripods anymore, but that's just going to make it, you know, make those images that much sharper. Um, they're also Nikon and this one actually excited me a little bit more. Uh, the, the D6, apparently is going to have the DX and FX. So you can shoot it in crop mode or you can shoot it in full frame mode, which the 850 has as well. That's something that they've done in the past, but the lens that they've just announced is a 120 to 300. It's f F2.8. And that's one that Michael has said that you've used with video, correct? Yeah. But uh, it's a Sigma version. It's a Sigma version. Right. Now, the thing that doesn't make sense to me is you've got that Sigma version out there and it's, it's not dirt cheap. It's about $3,200. I think if I remember correctly and Nikon's announcing this at a, around 6,000 bucks. So for, if you're shooting at crop sensor, you've basically got the equivalent of what 180 to 450 um, at a F2.8 lens. Plus you, you know, you have the opportunity to throw a teleconverter on there if you want get a little bit more out of a, you know, a B at F4, but you still have a pretty good lens combination at F4 as long as it didn't, you know, it didn't mess with the clarity. That to me, that lens actually was a little bit more exciting to me than, than the body just because it then gives you the opportunity to go shoot inside. That's more of a sports photographer's lens in my opinion. 
shooting at a, at a two eight at these kind of darker inside venues. It kind of opens that world up to the sports photographers a little bit more. But and then uh, Sony came out with the FS nine. It's uh, FS nine is a it's strictly video again six K sensor. But it dropped the price, the FS7, which, I, you know, we've had Doug Gardner on here in the past, and he talked about, him and Michael were talking about video, and the FS7 is a, a broadcast quality camera. So that's that was about $7,000, so it's dropped it about $1,500 because they announced the FS9, which is the replacement. It's a much larger camera, larger body. It's going to be a lot more to carry around. Um, but it makes that FS7 a little bit more affordable for those that are looking for a, a video option. Um, and then they are also talking about the A9 Mark II. I don't know how you could get any faster than that A9 is right now, but they're talking about the in-body stabilization being a little bit, a little bit better. And then they're also talking about the potential for AS, AR7S. And the seven or the S, excuse me, is for sensitivity. So it's better in the low light and more for the videographers. You can you can video a lot more or film a lot more in low light. So so many things on the horizon and the technological advances. I mean, we talk about it all the time, but the technological advances are exponentially jumping. Not just, you know, Canon used to be terrible about just giving you a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And these other companies now are forcing them to, to make these big jumps. I mean, going from the, what, 36 to now 80 megapixel sensor um, is a huge jump for Canon. And I think that came because of the, because of the competition. They, people are telling them what they want, and now they're kind of forced to listen because the other companies are doing it. So there's a ton of jumps going on out there right now and and it's exciting to see but at the same time kind of have to guard my pocketbook because i'd rather travel and get to some of these locations than than uh spend a lot of money on gear right now well here that being said so i'm spending a lot of time out there in the field by myself right whether i'm hiking to go find something or riding my bike down the road and the other day i got to thinking with wildlife so the, the big knock on wildlife photography for so long has been if you shot a picture of a bear 20 years ago, that bear is going to look the same now, right? They don't change much. Styles don't change. Their clothes don't change. Nothing changes really when it comes to wildlife. But what does change is this technology changes. And so I think people need to think about future proofing their equipment because the one thing that does happen with wildlife is these one-time events. So if mm -hmm. you're out there and you get a, a bald eagle stealing an antler off a moose and gets swiped out of the air by a bear and you capture that, <laughs> that you're never, that's never going to be seen ever again by anybody. Right. So you might as well be shooting on the best possible, whatever you can afford to get that. And to future proof it, because as these things do get bigger and bigger and bigger, the file sizes or the cameras or whatever, then that's something to take in consideration. And that is the one thing that changes 
is yeah well and the the other thing is is the they're everybody's kind of being forced to move to the cf express also and the for those that don't know the xqd was a big jump in right read write speed um for the for the cameras for nikon and now sony and michael i think canon uses uh cfast cfast so the card producers have have come out and i think prograde was the first one with the cf express so it's the same size same contacts as the xqd um the cf express though xqd can write about 400 megabytes per second xqd can write or excuse me cf express xqd writes 400 cf express writes a thousand so especially for these video cameras and the the nikon d6 is rumored to have dual cf express card slots you can still use your xqds in there but as far as these big file sizes like michael was just mentioning especially with video if you're recording 4k or 6k video you've got to have something that can keep up and then also these cards now are one terabyte instead of what right now most of the the biggest cards that we have the for your dslrs or 512 i think is the biggest that i've seen but the cf express they've got one terabyte cards already and that's that is amazing to me also i mean you could if you're just shooting stills, you can shoot for two weeks <laughs> if you're careful and yeah. not have to change your card. Take you 15 hours to download it, but <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I, I I don't know. I The whole reason I traipse around the woods with the red is just because I'm always future-proofing it. And But I have to deal with all those things, right? You have to have cards that are, you know, every day I show up with two or three or four hundred gigs worth of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Downloading it takes forever and duping it and all that stuff just adds up. I don't know. I'm, I There's no right or wrong answer. All I thought with my thought process was I hate keying in all this gear and I'm not, I have every kind of camera you can imagine. And I just usually would, you know, try to get the best one for that application, you know, just by renting or whatever. But I think you need to think about with wildlife, if you're in a situation where you could capture something that would never happen again, it just needs to be the best possible capture size and quality mm-hmm. that you can get. Yeah. And I, ha- I have found the Achilles heel of the Nikon D850. I was, I was on an Osprey um, on a lake and this Osprey was just sitting up in the tree and then all of a sudden launched off the tree and headed almost straight down for a fish and birds in flight I have noticed is a struggle that thing does not find focus that fast especially if you know you're going by trees and then all of a sudden trying to pick up on the bird it's catching trees it's jumping to the water it's jumping to the bird it's jumping back to the tree it is a, it lacks a little bit and I'm sure I could fine tune that focus system because you can go in and make some changes um, but you know, I've read that quite a bit too. I just never really ran into it until I started working on birds in flight. And in Alaska, when Michael and I were up on the Eagles, it actually did pretty well. I mean, there were times where it wasn't finding it, but I usually got the bird located in time to get 
you know, the shot that I wanted to get with this Osprey and it was, it was happening fast. It wasn't going very far to the water. So it was happening really fast, but it, it missed every time coming off the tree. So that, that was a little bit frustrating, but otherwise I've not, <laughs> I've not had too many complaints. It's been a great system. Right. Oh, I don't know. I'm kind of speechless, guys. <laughs> everybody, everybody just take a moment, sit back and think about <laughs> all this technology and the speed of change in, in this profession and in, in, in photography, nature photography, wildlife photography. I mean, we all need to fine tune our own capabilities in combination with our gear. So that's a focus point. Being out there is number one. The experience is, you know, sharing, having the experience for yourself, sharing it with friends, appreciating wildlife and nature is what it's all about. Documenting it honestly is, is, is number two in priority, but we want to do it well. And that's why, you know, we, we stay abreast of all this technology because it's just incredibly dizzying, but impressive all at the same time, you know, and just we picked up the Osmo action uh, cameras this summer from DJI. I, I love mine. I'm using it all the time. But now GoPro 8s come out. And, and you know, I use the iPhone for B-roll storytelling all the time. You know, I have an iPhone 8 Plus, but now the iPhone 11s come out with three lenses. And, you know, for those <laughs> that have deep pockets, no big deal. But there's a point where, you know, and the word of the day definitely goes to Michael for future-proofing. I love it. I love it. And it's something to think about, you know, because you're right. I cannot, we have these massive slide portfolios that we scanned and there's some applications that they're good for. Never would I ever have predicted or thought the digital would eclipse slide to the extent it has. And it, there's, you can't, I can't even look at those pictures anymore as far as selling, unless it's a half page image in a magazine or something, no problem. But, you know, I was speaking to a, a professional photographer in the United Kingdom yesterday and, um, some of his market's been shrinking, so he's gone back and is doing scanning his slides. Now, mind you, he's close to retirement, so he's in a different mindset that way too. But there's incredible quality of these cameras. The D850 is the first camera that I've been able to shoot at the what's 46 megapixel sensor, right? Mm -hmm. You can shoot horizontal, crop vertical, and put that on a magazine cover, and it's as good as any vertical ever was. I mean, that's a big game changer for me. But now the mirrorless cameras... What you see is what you get. My head's still spinning with that. I mean, I, I can't wait. But I, I like the 850 on the 2 to 500. I've got no complaints. I have, you know, I don't often do Peregrine Falcons buzzing me as much fun as that would be. I, I'm doing, right. I'm doing the charismatic megafauna we've talked about from day one for the most part, and it can handle that. So, just like all of our listeners, you know, it's a matter of deciding when do you jump and try something new. It's super exciting. I'm. I can't wait in many respects to try the mirrorless cameras and and whatever brand is putting out the premium equipment at the right price point, that's the ticket for me. You know, it doesn't have to be Nikon. Sony, no problem. If that's if that's where it's at and it's and somehow is going to elevate my game, whether it's like Mike and it and it reduces the weight of your kit so you can hike an extra five miles that day and not not feel it, or it's silence, what you see is what you get, or it's better stabilization, all these factors Every one of us have to weigh it versus the price point. But first and foremost, just enjoy wildlife and wilderness and be out there. And, you know, there's nothing like September, what we're having right now. I, for color and, and activity. And But, yeah, I, I love hearing this gear stuff. But I just, at the end of the day, it's like, 
whoa, you go on YouTube. I mean, that's something everybody yeah. should do. If there's some piece of gear that's tantalizing to you, go on to YouTube, watch five or six reviews. Don't watch one because you don't know where they're coming from and hear about this equipment. It's very interesting, but then there's just so many options. I was reading about the uh, the GoPro Hero 8 that you were just referring to. Yes. The one the one feature, so it's kind of a vlogger camera. There's a, there's an opportunity to actually put a small LED on top of it, and then also you can uh, plug in an external mic, and it's got a built-in mic also on the front of it. Um, but the one feature that I was like, whoa, <laughs> that can, kind of came out of nowhere was you can record at 200 frames a second in 4K, but then you can also, no, excuse me, let me correct that, 120 frames a second in 4K, and it has the hyper smooth in it, but HD, if you want to record full HD, 420, 480 frames a second. So you could, I mean, basically, you know, if you had the right, opportunity you could slow a bullet down at 480 frames a second and and get that on film so that's a pretty amazing feature and i think you know there there will be some people that that buy the camera just for that reason so anything super fast super super yeah, fast super to do fast. slow motion yep. slow right down no kidding wow or you know i think about those motorcycle racers that lower themselves way down on those curves you put a gopro close to that curve you can get them nice and silky smooth coming around there at 480 frames a second that'd be incredible footage okay well so, yeah. i think that all speaks to the future proof though right so if you do that yeah. you're back down to hd so what's the point in shooting that right because but you, you know, you've got like limited you use for to, it there's still it's limited but it's it's also shooting at 4K, you know, up to 120 frames. So we're still not broadcasting in 4K completely. It's it's getting closer with the speed of these transmission lines, but not quite there yet. And so I think 4K is still future proof. But you know, there is a lot to be said. Yeah, it's a good feature, and it's great for YouTube or for a vlogger um in the right cir circumstance but yeah well and i think it's the it's just what you're gonna do like i said you know a lot mm -hmm. of these guys are just shooting stuff it doesn't need to be future-proofed you mm -hmm. know it's, right. it's it's good for today and that's it and once you're through to the day it's you know, done you're on. yeah yep. whereas my point earlier was a lot of the stuff we get to see you probably never see it again on some of these things yeah well, yeah, that's that's the challenge of the videographer or photographer to capture that. But you're right. You want it in the best format for longevity that you can collect. But these cameras, I mean, at the price point, people can blow up huge metal prints off most of these cameras. And they're all fantastic now. But again, it depends on what you're playing with. Right. Yeah. If you want to shoot video and collect 6k because why not because 4k is on the cusp if you can get a model that shoots 6, 6k and isn't canon coming out with a was it a c500 i remember that correct yes. 6k or close it was 5.9k raw so that and that was it 
it's pricey. It's for people who are serious videographers, but something on the radar. I think it's coming out later this month or something. It's September. Yeah. But there's so many options, but you really have to break down all the specs and see where your where your future is and what you want to do and you know, map it out best you can. But it's amazing. I mean, it never, I mean, for years, for a decade, it was always the same film. And now it's like, just to reiterate, you buy a camera and three months later or a year at the very minimum, maximum, sorry, the very maximum, a year later, it's like, well, there's a game changer out there. So there's got to be a level of contentedness too and with what you're doing. And like you said, Ron, I mean, there's other things to invest in like traveling and as well. Mm-hmm money toward that and have more experiences but yeah it's as a wildlife or nature photographer you want to have the best equipment you can reasonably afford for the results it does make a difference so i i don't know about pro tips this week guys i had a pro tip lined up but that was like the pro tip new gear <laughs> yeah i it honestly i got a good pro tip we got to do pro tips all right so you know what like today I was out and I flat got rained out. You know, usually you go out no matter what. You figure it's going to lighten up or it has been a deluge. I mean, from the minute I went out to when I, I'm, I never get soaked all the way to the bone. And today it was just, ah, it was horrible. But being in these conditions, what I figured out was the most important, I can dry my clothes can dry. My cameras don't dry. So I've got to protect these cameras. And what I found was I got one of these little guys, which is just a, it's called a rain cover. It's a backpack rain cover and it's independent. So it, like some of us have backpacks that have a rain cover built in. You can just flip it out and put it over it. But if you guys are like me and you're using a backpack that's 10 years old, that thing's flat worn out. I mean, the, the waterproofness is there for a little bit, but it's not going to last you all day in a downpour. So I went out and picked up one of these and it's been awesome. So what I found out was it's independent of the backpack. So I can use it on the backpack if I want to, but I can also flip it over and throw it over a camera if I'm shooting out in the field. So it's just turned out to be like a pretty cool little accidental purchase that it works but today i had to use it on my backpack in addition to the one that had the back the cover that is on the backpack i put this over that just because it was i'm not kidding it was there's so much rain it was amazing mm-hmm. that's yeah i'm old school and I, I i do have that for one of my osprey packs and the, the waterproof one same thing and, and that's a great pro tip because it's small it's in its own pouch it fits in your backpack, your pocket. There's no weight to it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll even put a garbage bag or, or a uh, recycling bag. I, I prefer the recycling bag because I can see through it in my pack just in case of emergency. There's no weight to it. It's stuffed in the bottom at the back in, in case that happens. But yours is way better because it cinches around and you can cinch it around a camera more easily. Probably as well and far more durable over time. So it's a, that's a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Awesome pro tip. Well, I kind of went along the same, along the same lines. Um, seal skin socks. So I think when okay. we had, when we had Nick Page, <laughs> when we had Nick Page on, he was talking about some socks that he got. But these seal just the skins, socks, just the socks, just the socks. Okay, all right. That's it. That's all you have to wear. Just you the don't socks. Seal skin socks. Just socks. Just socks. Okay. All right. We good. 
Yeah, I get it. Okay. Just right. I just see your business model, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, so when I was I was filming some elk that were shedding the velvet, and these bulls were kind of down in the willows, so there's a lot of times I had to cross water to to get where I could get the light in good position to get the light coming in over my shoulder. Um, and I found myself popping my boots off all the time, sometimes going barefoot, uh, going through the river, that kind of thing, you know, just roll your pant legs up and go. And what I discovered is these seal skin socks, I was kind of saving them for the winter time because I thought, you know, they are definitely warmer um, because they are watertight and they're fairly thick. And so I was kind of saving them for the winter time and I thought, well, I'll go give them a shot. And sure enough, you just pop your boots off, scoot through the water. You can just kind of rub them off, almost like a squeegee with your hands. Rub the socks off and they're dry enough, put back in your boots and go. It's a lot quicker option than, you know, peeling your socks and shoes and rolling your pant legs up and that kind of thing. So they are definitely going to be in the bag no matter where I'm headed, you know, this fall and, and for sure in the wintertime just as an option. Mr. Raycroft, go ahead. I have my hand up in the classroom here. <laughs> I first have heard of these. So are they light and are they, they lightweight? Are not lightweight. No, okay. they're, a, they're a heavier sock, heavier duty sock. You, um, no, and they're, so almost, uh, they're almost rubberized. Are they like a neoprene? Sort of, they're not as flexible as neoprene is, um, but they, let me rephrase that. Neoprene kind of holds its shape. Yeah. Okay. These socks don't necessarily, I mean, they're, they're like a regular sock, but they are rubberized and they're a little bit stiffer. Mr. Raycroft. I have, I have one more question about the seal skin. Then I'm, uh, but where do you get these and, and why, why wouldn't you just buy swimming shoes? And flip, put them in your pack and put them on. Or, or I love, I love the, and I, I know I'm branding here and there's no affiliation, but I love the wiggies that we source, the, just the leg ones that we put over our boots and strap into the belts on the side. It's like hip waders stuff too. So that's another that's, option. That's, that's another option. They just take a little bit longer to right. put on. These things, all you got to do is kick your boots off and go. Cool. And then when you get to the other side, just wipe them off, put, put your boots back on and you're, you're good to go. Okay. Your boots in the evening don't take a lot of dry time. There's not a lot of water left on those things. It runs off for the most part. Sweet. So where do they, you get and I just got them at a regular sporting goods store. They are not cheap. I mean, they're, they're a little bit of an investment, you know, $60 pair of socks, uh, but they do a fantastic job and I definitely will use them a lot more. Michael. Did you have any questions? Your hand did not go up. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just going to say the wiggies are the kind of, this is the first year I've used those wiggies and kind of the ticket. I'm working, you know, it was so dry in Alaska this summer that all these rivers or creeks or whatever were, were dried up. And now with the last week, it's raining every day. And some of these rivers that I could walk through last week, I mean, you weren't even walking in water. You were just walking across and it was dry. And now they're up to my knee. Mm. Well, I saw so, flood warnings on the Weather Network for Anchorage. Yeah, flood it was crazy. Warnings. It's a, just oh. hype. It's all hype. It's not, well, know, there's no. That's awesome considering how dry it's been, like you yeah. said, with the 
fast forest fires all across the north. That's good news. Yeah, they got to be out now. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's just been nonstop driving rain all day today, which is awesome. I mean, I'd rather have that. And then hopefully when it's all over, these animals will be out active. Yeah, exactly. You know, the moose rut is on right now, so they're pretty active no matter what. But just seeing them today, I, I, didn't, like, I didn't even pull my cameras out. But you just sit there for an hour and just watch these moose. And whenever one gets full of water and it shakes off, you could fill a bathtub with the amount of water coming off that thing when it <laughs> shakes. It just looks like... It's like this halo stinky, of water. It's just so water. Yeah, it probably would stink a little bit. <laughs> well, it depends what you consider stinky, Ron. There's something about the the fragrance of the rut that brings the true wildlife photographer out of his shell. So, this is one pro tip section that our listeners, when you finish listening to this podcast, go to wildandexposed.com, hit that explore tab on the opening page so it comes up with the podcast. Look at this week's podcast and the show notes and the pictures and the links because you'll want to see what these are because wiggies are cool. But how weird is that name? What the heck is a wiggy? Well, go there and you'll see some wiggies. We'll put some pictures up about what they're all about and Ron's skins. Very effective sealskin socks, which may be the ticket too. I like what you say. You just kick the boots off and go. So if you don't have five minutes to pull the wiggies out of the backpack and slip them over your legs and you're going to miss action, that gives you that opportunity. Or you end up getting wet hiking boots, right? That's I've had yeah. that experience before too. So sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes you got to dry them out. I always take an extra pair of shoes on a trip. That's my I've, pro tip. I've <laughs> been waterproofing my shoes every other day up here. My leather boots, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. I see so a lot of guys water... walking around in these extra tufts, these brown rubber boots. Right. Right. I just can't oh, see. Yeah, I just can't. I don't know. I just feel like hiking five miles in rubber boots is not my idea of a good time. No. Uh, support. No. But everybody so, does it. Michael Morrow hack of the day. Another hack. When you apply the waterproofing to your leather hiking boots, you got to let them totally dry out first, don't you? I do. So I okay. have a little fireplace over here. So what I'll do is I'll dry them out. Right on. Completely dry it out. Take the shoelaces out. Get it all. I went to a local sporting goods shop, a kind of a boutique little shop here. And I asked the guy, what should I use? And he gave me this stuff. It's a waterproofer and a uh, leather conditioner. Is it so, a wax? I have a wax for mine. It's, it's kind, kind of, of like a, a melted wax. It's not. Yeah, you put it on with your hands, rub it in. Yeah. It's a little okay. meltier than what you're talking about. It's almost liquidy, but it's oh. working really good. Like today, oh. I was walking okay. through standing water on the trail. It was amazing. And I didn't, my feet weren't wet. Well, look but, what we did in July. We were able to wade out in those salmon streams like 15 times in our hiking boots. And, you know, near the end, I could feel it coming through, but I was truly impressed at the waterproof level of, of these boots with that on it. Yep. So it helps a lot. Yeah. yeah. So stay on top of it, dry them out and keep applying it for those conditions. And I wouldn't have these hiking boots if it wasn't for you. And you now a trip to Colorado showing them to me. And they've got to spend money on good boots. It'll yeah. keep you outside okay. longer. It's worth it. <laughs> You've got it all. That's well said. Keep you outside longer. <laughs> Who's not ready for that, right? Everybody listening wants to be outside longer. Quality boots will do that. More comfortable, good ankle support. 
especially for yeah. high country where Jerry Harrod goes up for the dull sheep. You need that too up there. But you never know crossing anything. You think of the on. I mean, the boulders—not boulders, but the rocks in any of these rivers you go across. You mm-hmm. really have to be careful. They can be slippery, and the better the ankle support, you know, the safer you should be. It's definitely it. slick. And that was another those uh, those socks and the and the river shoes would definitely wading shoes would definitely do it as well. But they they're a little bit grippy. You get in that slick moss right. moss covered pebbles and things and. Yeah. But don't do it unless you're sure of yourself. Uh, no, just go. No, it's on you. You got to be, got to look after yourself, people, but have adventure. All right. So what's my, yours, Raycroft? My pro tip for this week is, is about travel. And it's because of my discombobulated fall trips bouncing this way and that. And I had so many things lined up, you know, you book your trip. I, I like to be at least a month out for plane tickets and rental vehicles and wherever I'm staying, whatever it might be for better price points. So I booked these trips with every intention of doing them, but this year has been unpredictable and I haven't been able to get away as early as I had really hoped to and get up North with Michael and have the fun that we should have had. So I've had to bounce trips around, cancel flights, lose some money on flights, shift flights, but what I've learned in doing this, and I didn't, after all these years of booking travel, I assumed incorrectly that when you book your travel in advance, you're getting the best rate. Now, today's pro tip is going to specifically apply to rental cars. I'll book my rental car way out in advance, thinking, all right, it's this 10-day or three-week trip, whatever it might be, whatever vehicle I'm, I need for the trip I'm renting. I look at the different companies and I mean, I have no affiliation again, but I, I'll go to Expedia. Everybody has their own thing. I'll check on Expedia and see what they're offering and make sure it's unlimited miles and free cancellation. Then I'll book it. What I've learned on this trip is you want to keep checking that every week because these rental companies keep fluctuating their prices, even up until the day before you travel my the cars have jumped around like half the price so i wanted this style of car not i had to compromise and i had to pay like 300 dollars more for this trip i'm doing to the rocky mountains next week but then i checked a week before the trip i booked this three weeks out and it was down to half the price and it was actually the vehicle i wanted they keep jumping around so and with the free cancellation on these websites there's no skin i don't think off the websites back because it's the companies that they're using, all these different rental companies, and they change their price. I guess if they have vehicles left, they've got to lower it to move them. So keep checking your rental vehicle because those prices, not always, but what I've found this fall, they are dropping all over the place. I have three trips planned up. I have three different rental vehicles, and I've changed each one of them already at least once because there's another company a week later at you know, a significant discount. So be aware of that. It's not what you necessarily lock it in at. And there are opportunities as you get closer to your trip, especially for rental vehicles. Flights, I haven't found that as often. Um, sometimes the flights stay status quo, but more often they're expensive right beforehand. But the rental vehicles seem to drop. I didn't know that till this month in September because I had to compromise my trips with my friends. But that's where it's at. Check that's it out. Keep an eye on it. That's a good hack because it does. It makes a lot of difference. Save some money, right? I mean, save $300 in your rental vehicle, then your gas is covered for the trip. You know, something to stay on top of. Exactly. 
I had no idea. They didn't tell us that. It's not in the fine print. So something else that's happened to me recently on social media that was interesting. Oh. Every, <laughs> um, as wildlife and nature photographers, we put our stuff on social media. Now, I'm speaking specifically of Instagram. Lots of people put on Facebook. I think the parameters, and Ron can elaborate on this if I'm incorrect, the parameters are still different from Facebook to Instagram as far as uh, copyright. But your images that you put up should be copyrighted, and you should put a watermark on them, albeit something that doesn't obscure the image to you know affect the popularity of the viewing if that's important to you. But there should be a watermark on there declaring it's your copyright because, in my opinion, for me, I've spent all this time and money traveling. I've, I've honed my skill to whatever level it's at right now to create the images that I enjoy sharing. And if somebody takes that image and uses it, you know, that's not acceptable. Now, it's different for sharing. There are hubs and so on. Some of you may be comfortable with sharing your images on social media, and that's cool. If they give a link and a credit, that's how things build, and that's popular. It's something that happened this week to me. I was So sometimes I'll go on to grow my Instagram page. I'll, I have my, my niche. I have my animals that I focus on that seems to be catered best to my audience. So I'll look up moose. I'll do a hashtag moose search on Instagram and see all the new moose pictures. I hit the recent, not the most popular. You go through. And for other photographers that have put up moose images or bears or caribou, whatever it might be, if I like those images, I'll click on their page and I'll like it and, and show love that way. When I was doing that, I was scrolling along. I was like, whoa, look at that painting of my photograph. That's impressive. It was a giant, big painting. I, sc I scrolled further. Oh, there's another painting of another one of my photographs. Okay, so this is where everybody needs to do their own gut check, their own balance, what you're comfortable with. But for me as a professional, I have contracts with my publishers. My work is worth something. And I have to protect it from people who are using it for their own monetary gain. gain. Now, this isn't a seven-year-old using it for a school project, obviously, or something like that. I'm talking about somebody who's showing in galleries, who's selling images for thousands of dollars. Not images, sorry. Their original paintings and making prints, et cetera. Whatever the format might be, it was used as what's called ref artist reference. So I pursued those as I'm legally permitted to because it's my work. You know, I spent the three weeks on the Tundra to get that image, and it was a highlight image. They didn't ask. They didn't credit. They didn't give me a commission. They made it, and they're selling it. So I'm not sure how far to take this conversation, but it's turning out way, to be— All the way. All the way. All the way. I want to know. <laughs> it's turning out to be a good revenue stream, people. <laughs> it is. You go on there. You, so it's not just moose. I won't hashtag moose. I'll do moose paintings now. I'll do wildlife paintings. And I'm finding more and more, and because it's my legal right as copyright owner, and these images, again, have been painted without my permission, and, so, and they're being shown in big galleries for lots of money in these cases. It didn't take much for these artists, and to their credit, they, they paid promptly and apologized and have expressed a few of them interest in working together on, on other projects. And, and I said, <laughs> well, here it is. Well, no, this is my rate, and this is how I approach it. I'm, I'm a fair person. It's, it's, it's stressful to see this stuff because to me it's troubling and unethical if this occurs. But 
some of these artists have, you know, come to realize this and have, are behaving differently uh, because of other things I've heard too, and, and are correcting their process of finding their references for their artwork. But all right, I lost my train of thought. It'll come to me. Well, I will. Uh, I can tell you that. Oh, oh, I got it. Sorry, you're on. Go Sorry. ahead. All right. I don't lose Go it ahead. again. I don't lose it again. The so my first approach to them is I will send a very direct, very clear message that this is what's happened. I sent them a, a, an image of mine to show the image that they painted with the cop with my copyright watermark on it, and I said, and what I'll do is I'll write this is my fee for this artist reference application. This is my standard fee. You have the opportunity to pay this. If you do not pay this immediately, then I will pursue it for maximum copyright infringement with my attorney. And every time they pay very promptly because it's, it's, it's a reasonable price. And, um, anyway, it was, it was funny. I, I'm, I'm, I have no interest in mentioning names because these people have corrected and are, are proceeding, uh, ethically now. And again, I've mentioned an interest in working together, and this is my rate, and I'm happy to work with them now that they're above board that way. But it was interesting. I spoke to another very serious photographer in the West because I saw on one of his posts um, that his work had been painted by the same person. And so I phoned him and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? Do you know that this is – did you clear it? Are you okay with it? And it was very interesting because he told me the artist phoned him that very that day before to offer payment. It's the same artist that three days before I'd called out and made pay. So to their credit, they were fixing what they had done and and were behaving ethically. So my whole point in, in this yeah. is to be aware of it. Your your work is your art. Photography is art, and you spend a lot of time and effort. And of course, it's whatever you're comfortable with. It's your call with your own photography. But from where I sit as a professional, if somebody is selling something based on artist reference for all the footwork and gear investment and travel expenses and the good fortune of collecting that image and they're recreating it and selling it for their profit, they need to be held accountable and pay an artist reference. And it's something somewhat new to me and it's turned out to be one of the best um, revenue streams through Instagram that I've found so far. <laughs> so here's so, the deal with that. Oh, go ahead, Ron. You, you go well, first. I was just going to say, as far as copyright, so people think that Facebook and Instagram are completely public now uh, because of the Facebook influence when they purchase Instagram. So Facebook, it is, it is definitely public within Facebook. So if you see an image, you can share it. Now, the only time that that changes is if, you know, if somebody's got a watermarked image and you crop it so there's no watermark, then you're trying to basically take credit for that image. Then that changes it. There is copyright, you know, on those images, even within Facebook. Now that they have purchased Instagram, it's the same way. So within Instagram, you you know, as I understand, and I haven't been within, on Instagram for that long, but as I understand it, if you didn't tag someone and they shared your work, that was kind of a violation. Uh, now that's no longer. As long as it's within Instagram, they can use your images. Now with something like that, 
where they're using your images as reference. The maximum penalty in the U.S., I don't know what it is in Canada, but the maximum penalty in the U.S. is $30,000 for a copyright violation. And what I'd strongly recommend, and we've never talked about this before, so maybe this is another you know small hack, is in your camera's menu, you can go in and change the copyright information in your camera. And you do, there's one section where you want to put your name. There's another section where you want to type the words with written permission. Because even if someone took your image to Walmart, that statement is in the metadata along with your name. Walmart will not print that image without your written permission. So that's something that you want to you want to be careful to do. And it also gives you the opportunity, if you ever do have to go chase one of these down, you now have information in the metadata of that image that you can use to prove your ownership of that image. So it, it is something smart to do, right? When you set up your camera, I mean, day one, that should be one of the first things that you do. Hold Go on. in and put that so run that, image in. Run that by. So it, uh, there's multiple fields, right? So you there's have the copyright fields. So you name. go in. Yep. You'll, and actually, it's so when you go through your menu system, you'll get a drop down. And then there's one for copyright information. And there will be a couple different tabs within that. One of them, you want to put your name. And then the the other field, it'll it'll ask you for your name or the artist's name or the photographer's name or whatever. And then in the other field, you want to put the words with written permission. And so when when that shows up in the metadata of your images, it's you know wedding photographers do this all the time because if people get a copy of the electronic file, take it in, try to get prints without paying them for prints. I mean that's one of their revenue streams. So the companies won't print them or the print labs won't print that without your written permission. So you would give them a release if that's something you were going to allow. But it, it saved my bacon a lot. I get calls from people saying, hey, I need to get your permission to print this image. And, you know, it's not the revenue stream that Mark's talking about, but it does give you the opportunity to sell that image rather than have somebody print it for free. So here's the rub for all the U.S. photographers is you're in Canada. The minute Mark takes a picture, it's copyrighted. He, he oh, doesn't yes. have to follow this whole so, or send it off and get the official copyright in the mm. U.S. And I used to do this religiously. I have dropped off because I've been shooting so much video lately, but and it's harder to copyright the video. But with stills, I could submit. 20, 30,000 images at a time, pay my $100 or whatever it was. And then that all that whole selection of work was copyrighted. And then I would get an actual certificate highlighting all those images, the image names, everything. If you don't have that in the U.S., you can buffalo your way through it. You can send that letter that Mark talked about. And most of the time, people are going to react to that because they don't know whether you have the copyright or not. But if it uh -huh. did go all the way down the the path and you had an attorney do it, a lot of times you're not going to win if you don't have the official copyright on it. So you have to be really careful in the U.S. Mark is in Canada is totally different. So keep that, that in mind. Has changed in the U.S. in the last couple of years? Or it probably has, there, but I don't know there how. Have been, there have been cases that have been won by photographers who didn't go through the whole process, but had their information in the metadata of that image so they can prove that, yeah, they did in fact take it 
and somebody else tried to steal that for credit, whether it was in a, in a magazine and, you know, whatever the case may be, tried to steal that for credit and they were able to get credit for that image and get the, some of them have gotten the maximum penalty. So that can be huge, but a lot of that goes back to the court too. It doesn't all necessarily go to the photographer. I, um, when I first started doing that copyright thing, I was a member of ASMP. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that American society of media photographers or something like that. And, uh, they're just proactive against prof for professional photographers. And I went to a seminar and, and I, it was in Denver and I actually talked to the woman who put it on afterwards and she actually was from Denver too. So she helped, she taught me how to submit for copyright. She made half of her annual income just pursuing copyrights. She would find an image she was an architectural photographer. And so she had some pretty uh, recognizable images that she would take and spend lots of money taking, you know, whether she had to hire an airplane or do whatever she was doing for this architecture stuff. And she would see that image used somewhere and she would send out that letter and she made half her annual income, six figures, just on pursuing copyrights copyright infringement mm -hmm. so yeah i think it's just gonna get not that's why i'm like i put up like one picture a week on instagram nowadays because i'm like you know what i'm just not willing to you know i block anybody that reposts my stuff i just got to the point where it's and so i talked to a photographer the other day who it was somebody here in anchorage and somebody i don't even want to mention the name because i told him i wouldn't but this dude has some stuff that I know that would blow your socks off, your seal socks off, just blow them right <laughs> off. Even the seal, oh. the seal socks would come right off and nobody's ever seen it. Cause so the guy's like, he just knows that. I mean, he's got a plan and it, there'll eventually be seen by the public, but he is not putting anything out there just cause he wants to protect those images and protect his process and protect his whatever, you know, everything, everything about that image. So, I don't know. It's so tough. So tough. It is. It is a challenge. You know, to, to figure out how to how to best handle it, depending on your interests. And um, I, for that reason, that's why we've we've. I, I like what you're saying, Michael, and I do the same. If somebody's reposted without permission, I block them. That's it. It's done. Um, but I also keep my my number of images on my page to just a little over a hundred. I don't let it just keep going. And I've had other hubs that use images and I've recently asked them because they had like 3000 images on their hub and a lot of mine. And I said, you know, take down the old ones, please. And they obliged, they took down everything, but this year's because there's no point people aren't scrolling back through 3000 images on their page. And that's, you know, the way I like to think of it is this is my representation of my portfolio. A hundred or so images gives you a taste of what I do. It's always changing. There are new images coming up every day or two, but I take them off, but I don't want that many images on there for those reasons. And here's a hack for all you Instagrammers out there that want to grow your page. When you take it off, and post it six months later, it's a fantastic image still six months later. It's worth, you know, if it's a, one of your good shots, it's worth seeing again and again. Pe and people look at these pictures in the blink of an eye. Some stop, thank you, Shane. I appreciate every time you stop and shout out to me. <laughs> but people don't stop that often. So then you can repost it four or six months later and we'll get the same amount of traction if it's been one of your images that has collected a lot of 
likes or followers when you did post it the first time. So I'll do that. I'll keep my Instagram growing. You know, I put up new images every week. There's some new images, but they're equally as many that have been up there before. I just kind of keep that going so you get a flavor of what I do for work. Want to see, I put new stuff up, but there's a lot of stuff that I don't even remember when it was posted, right? So how are other people going to know that? Oh, yeah, on January 1st last year, Mark put up this moose picture. There's no harm in seeing it again because it warrants it. And, and you can grow your Instagram that way and keep it somewhat contained with the number of images instead of having 800 or 1,000 images on your page just sitting there. And, of course, the other thing, too, we've talked about numerous times is making sure that they're low resolution. You know, keep them 72 oh. DPI, you know, six or 700 pixels wide, watermarked. They don't have to be super high def sexy to impress on Instagram. So just to ride that line of, of minimum image integrity to be smart about that too. And so I have some great photographer friends out there who've been getting on Instagram lately and are putting stuff up and I love their work and there's no watermark. And it's like, you got to look after that. You know, there's too much love and work effort in, in what we produce, not to have that recognition and that. So stay on top of it, be smart about it and, and just be watchful. But it is, you see a lot of, and learn a lot. I learn so much through Instagram every day. Places I'm going, I watch for a couple of weeks up beforehand. I know what's going on around there. If it's a public place where, you know, if it's a big national park or something, you know what's happening. Even a small place, you can see what's happening. If it's somewhere way out in the middle of nowhere, obviously people aren't posting it. But there's a lot to be learned, a lot of benefits. But be smart in handling it and watch for the paintings. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and watch for the paintings. Watch, they're right there. They're right there. So, and and again, it's it's just something to remind these artists. Make them make them pay if they're making a profit. It's only fair. It's only right. So we've been apart for so long that we've hit the magic number, folks. We're over an hour on today's podcast, just catching up amongst the guys here. So we're gonna stop this, and we're gonna make this a two-part podcast, and we're gonna roll on and talk about what we've been doing in the field with this very next podcast. So thank you for tuning in today. If you want to see more of our team's work, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and of course on our website at wildandexposed.com. Also a big shout out to Missy McKenzie for all that she does to produce this podcast behind the scenes for your listening enjoyment. And no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, Make sure to subscribe and to follow and to give us a positive review. review. A five-star rating or a thumbs up as those truly help us to do what we love to do and to bring this podcast to you on a weekly basis. And share the love. Tell your friends. Share our Facebook content. Let people know about our podcast so they can get on board and follow along in our adventures with us. Until next time. You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.